about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first guard and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, are you out of her mind? But she kept insisting that it was real. And they kept saying, it is his, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Yeah, come on. Are you excited to get into God's word this morning? Amen. If you're new to our church, you maybe came during the month of December, we are a church that absolutely loves God's word. In fact, we love it so much, we teach it verse by verse, and our entire Sunday service is geared uh, geared towards the, the uh, teaching, and so it's so exciting to be back. I do wanna make a quick announcement because I'm married to the lady who's putting this on, and she asked if I would say something about it, and I said, you bet. So we as a church are doing the Journey to Us Marriage Conference, and this is put on by Focus on the Family, and this is really, this is incredible that we're doing this. Uh, this is something that most churches uh, charge you quite a bit for because it costs a lot to put on. 
uh, focus on the family comes and they do it all. We have to pay them to do it. But for us, this is our gift to you. And not just our gift to you, but we want you to invite as many friends as you can to this event. This is truly something incredible. And I wanna just put this out. This is not for couples uh, who are, are struggling in their marriage, okay? So uh, there's so many people who have come up and said, I, I don't wanna sign up because I don't want uh, people to think I'm having problems in my marriage. That is not what this is for. And so, uh, wives, I'm gonna, put on the I'm gonna put some pressure on your husbands. Wives, make sure you sign up for you and your husband to attend this. It's not just for couples. If, if you're young and single and wanting to be married one day, this is something that you would benefit from as well. But wives, go up today and sign up and register. This is going to be an incredible uh, ministry for you. It's just two days, February 16th and the 17th, and like I said, it's a free event, uh, and regi re registration closes on February 2nd, so you wanna make sure you get on and sign up for this event. Child care is gonna be provided, um, and you can register in the Church Center app, or you can contact Pastor Liz at her email, Liz at newheightsohio.com. This is something that you wanna do, so get on today. I wanna see a big boost in the registration. Don't necessarily do it right now while we're preaching, but wait till I'm done and then get online and go register for that event. It's something you don't wanna miss. Uh, marriage is a gift, amen? And we're always, always looking. Uh, I, I tell the wives to go up and sign up your husbands, but I could also say husbands, lead your, your home and go sign up. It's going to be something that benefits you and your wife and your family and your walk with the Lord. So get on and register today. It's a free event for you. That's a gift from New Heights Church. And you can thank our incredible church board, church leadership team for that. Actually, give it up for our church board because they're the ones who decided it's gonna be free. This is something we wanna put on and give to our church. We love our, our leadership team here so much. All right, you ready to get into God's word? All right, if you have your notes, I need to make a quick, uh, quick note. Uh, the notes that go out every single week, the last few times, right before we stop for December, we've been giving you guys commentary. Now, at the end of every, all of your notes, it's supposed to, uh, we're supposed to cite that. That is coming from EnduringWord.com. I think on this week, it did not go on. That's Pastor David Guzik. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor, and he provides that for churches, and so that's where we're getting that. That's just the commentary. So if you look under your notes for each point, you're gonna see uh, verses six through whatever, and then it's got some commentary. That's from EnduringWord.com, and you can go to that and get more commentary if you would like. But today, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 12, and we're gonna look at verses one through 17, and if you know me, you're probably worried. That's a lot of verses. Don't worry, because it's a narrative, it's a story. Uh, Tiffany already read it for us, and so we're just gonna start making some applications and drawing some points from this particular passage. But I once heard a preacher tell a story uh, that had been told to him by one of his friends who had served in the US military, and the story was about this soldier. He and his men were deployed in Iraq. They were on patrol. When they walked into an ambush, and enemies had set a trap for them, and unfortunately, they couldn't get out of. They were stuck. They were surrounded on all sides. They were taking heavy enemy fire. They were low on supplies and ammunition, and they had to settle in for a long firefight. The only thing that was working for them was their communications. That still worked, and because of that, they were able to call in for support. But they were exhausted. They were beat up, stressed out, and on alert. 
The soldiers needed to keep fighting to hold their position until reinforcements could show up and put down the enemy and get them safely home. When I heard this story, I thought, what a good description of spiritual warfare. What a good description of spiritual warfare. The Bible talks a lot about spiritual warfare, and it has a lot in common with actual combat. For the church, listen, we are surrounded by the enemy at work in the world seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. It is a real enemy, and I'm gonna say it again. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy wants to get into our families and destroy our families, it wants, he wants to destroy the lives of our siblings, our mothers, our fathers. He wants to wreck our marriages. His ultimate goal is he's going to hell and he wants to drag as many people as he can with him. I mean, this is why Paul, in two letters to the Thessalonians, we read about believers who were experiencing affliction, conflict, distress, darkness, evil, persecutions, suffering, rebellion, lawlessness, wicked deception, unrighteousness all coming ultimately from wicked and evil men, but wicked and evil men who were influenced and controlled by the devil. The devil, our enemy. Now, the reason I love the Bible so much is not because I understand all of it, but I love it because it tells me the end of the story. The Bible tells me that one day Jesus Christ is riding into history on a white horse with an army called the angelic host to destroy his enemies and ours. I get excited about that. Again, I know that one day this will happen. This is going to happen. I don't know when this is gonna happen. I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime. I don't know if it'll be in my kid's lifetime, but I know it's going to happen. And so right now we're in this waiting period and, and things can get tough. Things can get hard. I'm gonna be really transparent. As your pastor today, I have felt like I have been surrounded on all sides before in my life by mental, physical, and even emotional oppression. I have felt that before. Those feelings are real. That's why I love that we're in Acts chapter 12 today because it's packed, and I mean absolutely packed with spiritual truth for life. You know, during my time as a, a, a tour director in Alaska, uh, I did that all throughout my undergrad and graduate work. Uh, during the summers, I would go be a tour director with Holland America in Alaska and take these groups of 50 passengers all throughout the interior of Alaska, and then I would drop them off on the cruise ship. And no, I did not get to go on the cruise ship. That would have been fun. I had to do the hard part. But I, I remember one summer particularly, there were forest fires that were just spreading all across the state of Alaska and really just messing up tourism and messing up all kinds of stuff. And I remember uh, sometimes roads would close. It just was this horrible hassle. And more than that, it was, it was destroying the forest there. And I remember I, I got into close contact because there were times where I would get stuck in a city like Toke, Alaska. I'd get stuck in Toke and I would get to mingle a little bit with the firefighters and they would show me the equipment that they were using to put these fires out, and it was pretty impressive, to be honest with you. Now, <laughs> I'll tell you, the, the equipment they were using were not squirt guns. They weren't super soakers. Can you imagine if somebody showed up to a wildfire spreading across Alaska with a super soaker? You would think, what an, what an idiot, right? What does this guy think he's gonna accomplish? Why? Because the equipment, a squirt gun, does not fit the battle that firefighters are 
facing. So we would call it stupid. It's absolutely foolish to think you can fight wild forest fires with a super soaker. And what I want you to recognize, what I want us to recognize this morning as we walk through Acts chapter 12, while it's not a water gun in a wildfire, there is a spiritual war that's going on around us all the time, every day. In fact, you need to go home this week and read Ephesians chapter 6. Read Ephesians chapter 6. Be in Ephesians chapter 6 as we're going through this chapter in Acts. In Ephesians, we hear this description of a spiritual war that's constantly going on around us. And, and there is this world, a spiritual world that we can't see that directly impacts the world that we can see. And what will happen so many times in our lives is that we see what the result of a spiritual war is and we choose to fight with physical means. Now, that's about the same thing as fighting a wildfire with a water gun. And what I want us to see this morning is when we recognize spiritual warfare, there's an opportunity of a spiritual weapon that we could choose to engage with, and it's called prayer. And here's what I love so much about the Holy Spirit. I wish I could take credit for it, but it's not me. We chose to go through the book of Acts. I had no idea we'd be in chapter 12 as we start the new year, as we start the 21 days of prayer and fasting. But it, the Holy Spirit knows, and here we are in Acts chapter 12, about to talk about prayer being a spiritual weapon in a spiritual war, and we just happen to find ourselves in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting. Isn't the Holy Spirit amazing? So I wanna make a few observations we could apply to our lives as we try to understand God's word today here in Acts chapter 12. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we love you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Today we pray that the Holy Spirit would do what only the Holy Spirit can do and reveal your truth to us. Take me out of this equation and just speak truth to the hearts of everyone that is here today. We pray for life transformation. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the first thing you need to know when facing spiritual warfare, and it's gonna seem really simple. Know that God is in control when facing spiritual warfare. <laughs> Simple, right? Know that God is in control. Look with me, and again, I'm not gonna read all 17 verses, but I'll, I'll pick up on some important ones. Read with me here at verse one through four. When I say all, all verses are important, it's just Tiffany has already read them, so we're just gonna start drawing truth from them. Verse one, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. In the first couple verses, we see this idea of persecution. Now, you and I in America, in the American church today, this may seem somewhat like a foreign concept to us. Now, I faced this, not necessarily personally, but at least I was surrounded by it when I lived in the country of India for a short stint. Um, in fact, one of the national pastors who I work with there and our church is gonna help because they're launching another church this year and our New Heights Church is gonna be a part of it. Uh, I'll never forget as he took me around the area that he felt called to and I met three pastors. He was one of them and two of his colleagues. And I remember them telling stories about the 10 that graduated with them. 10 in their graduating class at their Bible college and only three were either alive or out of prison to do ministry. So I'll never forget that. 
you know. It's often been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that's true. And, and what that statement means is no matter what Satan brings against believers by way of persecution or opposition, the church goes on. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to thrive. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, right? You remember that when he said that? And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those are the words of Jesus. You can take it to the bank. The church is going to continue to grow and thrive no matter what opposition Satan brings. Okay, we've seen through the book of Acts the persecution that broke out with Stephen. He was the first martyr that died. The persecution that came as they were scattered when the early apostles were beaten, arrested, and told not to preach in his name. And God actually released them earlier from prison as he's gonna do again today in our text. We need to remember when we're facing hardships, trials, and difficulties that God has not vacated the throne. He has not left the throne God is still sovereignly ruling and he is in control. Even though things may look like they're out of control, God is in control. That's why in verse one it says, now look with me, about that time, what time? It was the time when Paul and Barnabas left Antioch and had taken the offering to Judea for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, you need to remember the Gentile church in Antioch had, been, uh, had gathered together this offering and gave it to the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, actually, actually called Saul at this time, who took it to Jerusalem and shared, shared that with them. Well, during this period of time, Herod, Herod the king, who was Herod the king that is mentioned in verse one, there are actually about five Herods, by the way, mentioned in that period of time. Uh, and first of all, they, they start with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the Herod that was, was there during the time when Jesus was born. He's the wicked king that slew all the babies in Bethlehem. He was followed by Herod uh, Archelaus. Then there was Herod Antipas, followed by Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II. This Herod that's mentioned here in verse 1 is actually Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, the Herodian dynasty, actually what's called Edomites. They were of the tribe of Esau, and they were ruthless, wicked, cruel. They tried their best to kind of cater to the favor of the Jews. They were trying to be Roman kings, but also trying to get along with the Jews. So they were just wicked, cruel, ruthless individuals. They were, they were, uh, there was also Herod Antipas that had John the Baptist beheaded. And this wicked Herod, look with me at verse 2, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So we know from the text that he did that because he wanted to make the Jews happy. Why did he want to make the Jews happy? Because he wanted the Jews to like him. He kind of picks something that he can do to gain favor of the Jews, or at least so he thinks, and he thinks, well, let me try this out. So I'm going to have one of these apostles arrested and put to death, and then in verse 2, here's the statement, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And just so you know, this is the first apostle, Peter, James, and John, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Nathaniel, the 12 apostles minus Judas, that Jesus picked to actually die a martyr's death. We had other martyrs already, but not, not, none of them were the apostles. And so it started with Stephen, you know, but, but this is the first apostle. He was part of the inner circle that we sometimes refer to as Peter, James, and John. He was the brother of John. And, and, and 
it's interesting, James and John, the two of them, it's interesting because they were known as the sons of thunder. You remember these two guys? These are, these are the ones that my boys are named after, uh, at least their middle names. Or, originally, we were gonna name, name them uh, Asher and Liam, but call them by their, their middle name, and well, you know, they're Liam and Asher now today, but they were gonna be James and John, so I always call my boys the, the sons of thunder. And they were called that because they were gonna call down fire from heaven and have the Samaritans consume because they didn't want Jesus to come through their territory. So they were called the sons of thunder. And if you're taking notes, I think it's important for you to add this as a footnote. There's this murder by Herod of James, the brother of John, the first apostle, and here's the interesting part. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy spoken by Jesus himself. So remember, the mother of James and John, we're gonna call her Mrs. Zebedee, they were the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said this, Lord, may my two boys, James and John, isn't that what moms are always doing, trying to look out for their, their boys? You ever coach uh, uh, peewee baseball or something, you'll meet those moms. Hey, can you get my, my son in? Can he play more? We do it all the time. Moms, that's what moms do, and dads. But moms, moms out there, can you get my boys, James and John, to sit next to you in your kingdom, one on your right hand and one on your left? These boys are probably thinking, man, mom, History tells us that this mom was the reason that Jesus' ministry was funded. The Zebedee fishing business was doing pretty well, actually, and mama wanted to make sure Jesus' ministry was supported well. Actually, we talked about it on our trip to Israel. It was something our tour director talked a little bit about, but you find it uh, throughout history books as well. So, so they're probably thinking, yeah, mom might have some sway here. Mom's got some pull. She's one of the big funders of the ministry, so if anybody can do it, it it's mom. And so she's got the courage to ask Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, can my two sons sit on your throne with you? Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink of? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And here's what James and John said, yes. <laughs> they said yes. Without any hesitation, they said yes. And I'm not sure they really understood what they were saying yes to. Because Jesus was referring to his suffering. He was referring to the cross that he would have to die on. And here's what he's saying. Are you willing to suffer and die? Are you willing to be baptized with the same baptism and drink the cup of suffering that I'm baptized with? And they said yes. And so Jesus responded, you shall be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with and you shall drink the cup that I drink of. Jesus actually predicted the way that they would suffer and die. I find it interesting that James is the first in order in light of that prophecy of the apostles that died, but his brother John was the very last one of the group to die. And as far as we know from history, the first to die of the 12 was, of course, Judas, who betrayed the Lord, but there was James and then John. James died a martyr's death, and John, his brother, who, by the way, is the apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation, died of old age. And we don't know exactly for sure how he died, but tradition says that he died of old age. Remember, he was banished by the Roman emperor to Patmos about 90 AD when he received the book of Re Revelation. And some feel that even in his old age that he continued to preach and was persecuted, but then eventually died of old age. Now, verse three, Peter's then arrested. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... He had Peter arrested, and Herod killed James and saw that the Jews were happy about that, so he proceeded to arrest Peter also. I'm sorry, he was pleased, 
he saw that it pleased the Jews with the death of the apostle, and then he proceeded to arrest Peter. And look what it says. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So Luke wants us to know the period of time. You know, he, he first takes James, then he takes Peter, and we're gonna get to this in a little bit, but Peter was no doubt the lead apostle. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So there would be 16 soldiers, and each squad would have four soldiers and would then rotate them. So there would be two soldiers chained to Peter. Don't miss this. Two soldiers chained to Peter and two soldiers outside the prison doors watching him. Why? Because earlier, Herod was embarrassed. Peter escaped. He, he's looking at Peter like the great Houdini. Man, this is the escape artist. He is not going to be embarrassed again, so he kind of goes overboard, making sure he is watched and guarded. All right, his goal was to have, after the Passover, a really nice present for the people. He's gonna bring out Peter for the people. Now stop for a minute and process this. I mean, this is discouraging, right? It is, it doesn't look good. The church, could, the church could have been very discouraged, could have been very bothered, thinking, what is going on? This is horrible. James says he's most likely uh, been beheaded, and I mean, the text says they killed him with the sword, but it's most likely that he actually had his head taken off. Now, Peter's been arrested. He's pro they're probably thinking, we can't lose Peter also. We can't lose Peter too. And they honestly are probably just taken over by grief and shock at this point because what happens when your close friend dies? You grieve him, right? Nothing's going as planned and everything seems to be shaken. Now, for us, whenever you look at your life and things are going crazy and you don't understand what God is doing, you need to remember this. I know it's simple, but it's the Bible and it's truth. And we don't do it. As simple as it is, we don't practice this in our life. Remember that God is in control. God is in control. The sovereignty of God needs to be taught so much in our churches, and yet we neglect that doctrine so often. God is in control. What we often teach in churches is come up, let's pray that God changes your situation and circumstance. But God is in control. That's what we should, we, we need to understand that before we even approach prayer. God is in control. Simple as it is, the first thing we do when, when things seem out of control is we lose our faith and our trust in God. What we need to understand is that God still sits on the throne. Did you know that every time in the book of Revelation God is referred to, he's referred to as being in heaven? Every single time. Go look it up. Go read the book of Revelation. Every time it refers to God, it's gonna say he's in heaven. Why? Because we need to know that God is still on the throne. Okay? The throne is not vacated. I don't, I don't know what you're going through or what's happening in your life today. I don't know what tragedy, what darkness, what difficulty or hardship you might be facing, but you need to remind yourself today that God knows. God knows. God's on the throne. He's in control and we can trust him. We can trust him. This is not just a Band-Aid. I promise you, this is not a Band-Aid. God is in control. If you can understand that reality, you can grasp that truth, it's going to change the way you view life. God is in control. Stop looking at your circumstances. Start looking to his word. God is in control. God sits on the throne. God rules. God reigns. Remember that. That's why, and, and look with me at verse five. Oh, I got ahead of myself. We'll get to it. Don't worry. 
Verse five, earnest prayer, it says. Earnest prayer. Earnest prayer. Now there's a lot of lessons about prayer in this story, but the big idea is that God hears our prayers. So first, God is in control. And secondly, when we pray, God actually does hear and answer our prayers. Peter was kept in prison. James has been beheaded with the sword. Peter has been arrested. It could be that he was arrested before Passover and kept there the, the whole week. Why didn't, why didn't Herod kill Peter during Passover? Because the Jews were celebrating the feast. He didn't want to execute him uh, probably for a couple reasons. First, it would disrupt their feast. Secondly, they would be so preoccupied with the Passover that they really wouldn't be able to appreciate the fact that Peter was dead. And he wanted to win their favor. So he wanted to have a maximum impact and he wanted to wait till Passover was over. And, and then we see in verses six through 17, we see what made the difference. And because Tiffany already read it, to save time, we won't read it again. But what made the difference here, an amazing point that Luke makes, is found in verse 5. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor Justin. Does that mean they didn't pray for James? Is that what you're trying to say? Why was James put to death and Peter was released? Didn't they pray for James? Well, let me say this to begin with. I believe they, they did pray, no doubt, for James as they prayed for Peter. But this is one of those difficult things that we deal with in life when we're facing hardship, trials, and difficulties, is that we don't understand the ways of God. And I'm gonna be a pastor or a preacher that's bold enough just to say that. We don't always understand the ways of God. God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are beyond our ways. God's ways are past us finding out sometimes. That's why Romans 11.33, and I do have it, I was going to read all this to you. <laughs> Here we go. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. We see this theme over and over in the Bible, but it's one of the hardest doctrines to accept. God's ways are higher than ours, and we can trust him. Usually what happens is that people get mad at God because they pray and God didn't give them what they wanted. I hear this over and over in my ministry. I prayed and God didn't answer my prayers. My sick child didn't get healed or God didn't give me a spouse or, or God allowed my spouse to die or why did God allow me not to get that promotion or why did I get let go from work or why did I get cancer and I prayed that God would heal me and God didn't heal me. And we simply just don't understand, right? And you're talking, let, let me just say, I'm preaching from experience here because I've been in that situation where why didn't God hear my prayer and answer my prayer? Why did my dad, my father, who gave up everything to go pursue a career in ministry because God had called him to, end up dying at 50 years old of a brain tumor? Why? Why? As a 13-year-old boy, I'm struggling with that. I don't understand it. How could God allow that to happen? We just... We just don't know why, and that's why I go back to my first point. God is in control. You've got to go back to his word, and word, the word says God's in control. We must remind ourselves that God does hear. So God does answer prayers, but he doesn't always answer them the way we want or the way we expect him to. I'm going to say that again. God does answer prayers, but he doesn't always answer them the way we want or the way we expect him to. Listen, part of walking by faith and learning to trust God is that God doesn't always answer the prayers the way we ask him to answer our prayers. 
God has reasons and purposes beyond our knowledge and our understanding that we just, we just have to learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't know, we don't understand, we don't have the answers. And some people say, well, maybe God had plans for Peter, and, and it was just time for James to go, and, and, and God wanted to use Peter, and God had ministry for Peter to do. We don't know that. We can't theorize or read into the narrative either. Actually, after this, in the book of Acts, Peter passes off the scene pretty much. There's, a, there's not a lot of mention of Peter after this, so we don't know or understand why God takes some people early, why God lets other people live, why some people will get sick and die, or, or why some people are healed, why other people are not healed. We just have to learn to trust God. You say, well, I can't believe you would say that, Pastor Justin. You, you're preaching this, and uh, that's not, it doesn't sound very spirit-filled, or it, it, doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like you have any faith. I mean, there are people here today who are battling illness and, and you're leaving us with no hope. No, listen to me. Listen to me. If you take home anything today, take this home. Your hope is in God. Your hope is in God. Your hope is being realistic in realizing that God knows better than we do, right? God is sovereign. God is in control and God knows what he's going to do. I remember a, a faith healer came through when my dad was battling this tumor and all four of us kids were just praying. I don't think we had ever fasted in our life before up to that point. And we were fasting so much that my brother who was 15 at the, at the time kept throwing up. My mom told him, you gotta eat. But he said, no, I can't eat until dad's healed. She says, no, you gotta eat something. This faith healer kept coming into our church and he was a good friend of ours, we love him but kept telling us kids, if you guys just have, you need faith and your dad's gonna get healed. You need faith. I'm gonna tell you what, it took a lot more faith to walk through that nine years of battling a brain tumor and not seeing the prayers go the way we want. It took a lot more faith to believe in God than if he had gotten healed at that point. I'm gonna just be really honest with you. That's faith. I had faith, my father had all kinds of faith. He wasn't afraid of death, he wasn't afraid to die. Never robbed him of his joy or his peace. He battled that for nine years and was not once afraid of the outcome. That's faith, right? The Bible says that just shall live by faith. It's learning to trust God even in the dark, even when we don't see what God's doing or what God's purpose or, or his plans actually are. That's faith. Now, God's sovereignty has to be the foundation to our doctrine of prayer. It has to be. Some people wrestle with subjects of prayer because they think if God's sovereign, he's only gonna do what he wants to do, then why pray? Now, that's a good question, but the Bible has an answer. And listen to me, if you're taking notes, write this down. God has ordained that through our prayers, his purposes and plans are accomplished and fulfilled. Through our prayers. Now, I'm not gonna stand up here and lie to you today and now, I'll be fully transparent with you. I'm gonna admit that this is a mystery to me. <laughs> not only is it a mystery, but because I don't fully understand or grasp it all the times, but sometimes I'm not even comfortable with this. Sometimes it makes me uncomfortable. The fact is that God is sovereign and he does use our prayers. We need to learn that God wants to save people, but he wants to save them as we pray and witness to them, as we share with them, right? You know, we don't just say, okay, God's gonna save whom he's gonna save and whoever he's gonna save, that's God's will and God's work and we just let God do it. No, God said go into all the world, preach the gospel, right? And we need to pray for the lost. The God that's ordained the end, the salvation of sinners, has also ordained the means to the end. 
that we actually pray and align ourselves with God's will. And when we learn to pray, we become joint participants in the work that God wants to do. I'm telling you, prayer should be the most important ministry of the church. Right? God's gonna move when we pray in accordance with his will. He's gonna hear our prayers, he's gonna answer our prayers, and he's gonna get the glory for it. Now this next part I got from Pastor J.D. Greer on this topic, three important aspects of their prayer in this text that we're looking at today, and I love it, couldn't say it any better. So number one, whatever they were afraid of, they talked to God about. Whatever they were afraid of, they talked to God about. They were afraid of their future, so what did they do? They talked to God about it. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Answering God, How to Pray the Psalms, incredible book, if you're wanting a, a good book to start in, in 2024, I would encourage this one. Eugene, Eugene uh, Peterson, in his book, Answering God, How to Pray the Psalms, points out two kinds of prayer that we see in the Psalms, evening prayer and morning prayer. Now, evening prayer is marked by praying your worries to God. You know, a good example of this is Psalms 4. So write that down, go look at Psalms 4 this week. In Psalms 4, David commits to God the things that he's worried about. He prays about the different people that were harassing him, the circumstances in life that were causing him stress, upsetting him, causing him major pain. If, if you're new to Christianity, David went through all kinds of horrible stuff. And he writes about it in the book of Psalms. And what he does in, in these evening prayers is he's reminding himself the promises of God. So a lot of times in these prayers, you're seeing him just dump. It's like going to a psychologist. He's sitting on the couch and just dumping it off on God. It sounds horrible. It sounds like he's lost his faith. It's lost his trust. And then he always, when he's rounding third base, he always brings it home, and he always reminds himself of the promises of God. Then you've got morning prayer. Psalms 5 is a good example of this. In this prayer, he's more active, right? This is more of a, he's bringing petitions to God. He's praying boldly against the things in the world that aren't right. And just for your information, we see both of these types of prayers in Acts 12. But, but this is, in a sense, evening prayer where they, where they commit what worries them to God. Now I want you to answer a question today. So you got two prayers, all right? So evening prayers, you're, just, you're giving it to God. Morning prayers, you're really, you're really just praying boldly against things that aren't right. I want you to answer a question today, and I need you to really do this. I, I need you to engage with me for a minute. What do you do when you're afraid? Now, I believe in God. I believe that the Bible is the word of God, and that means I trust it with my life. And Bible here in Acts 12 is teaching a principle about prayer that if you would develop the practice of evening prayer in the sense of what I just explained, it would give you such an incredible sense of peace. Okay, it did for David, and he went through all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. But look how he ends Psalms 4.8. Look at this. He says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I can have peace. When I pray, and, and I need you to understand, I, I'm gonna pause for a minute because your pastor has dealt with major depression in his lifetime. I have battled depression and I have been in some really, really dark places and I always... I always, and there were times where I had to go see counselors and there were times where I had to even get medication. And I'm, I'm telling you, if you're sitting in here today, God is the answer. 
He is. The Bible's the answer. But there, some of you might be sitting in here today and you, you, you've had thoughts of hurting yourself or harming yourself. You need to go get help. That's the first step is to go get help. Go, go see a Christian counselor. Go see a Christian psychologist. Go get the help that you need. And I'm telling you from experience, I have been there and I've had to do that. So I wanna pause just for a moment and, and tell you that because, but in this truth is gonna work in your life. But sometimes, sometimes just like if somebody's battling cancer, yeah, God can heal the cancer, but we still wanna treat the cancer, right? So if you are sitting in here today, I want you to know there's hope. I do, I want you to know there's hope. If you're battling depression and mental illness, I want you to know there's hope. I'm a living testimony. I can testify to the power of God in my life and I was able to overcome that. Now there were times that I had to go get help with Christian counseling. We have, we have some incredible places as a church that we can refer you to. Get the help that you need. That's the first step. That's a step of faith is going and getting that help. So go do that. There is absolutely no shame in going and seeing a Christian counselor. Do you hear me? If you need help, go get help. We wanna help you. We're gonna walk with you on this journey. Sometimes our pastors are not equipped. We are not counselors. You know, I'm trained in theology, so I can walk with you though, and I would love to walk with you through that journey, and we could get you to uh, a place that can help you. But, but I can have peace, because when I pray, I talk to the one who controls the universe. I get to talk to the one who said that no good thing would be withheld from those who trust him. Is that you today? Do you trust him? I get to talk to the one who takes care of me like a father and knows when one hair falls from my head. Listen to me, church. He knows where you are at. He knows your address. He knows what you need. I get to talk to the one who promises to direct all of my steps. He's in control of my life. If we allow him to, he will lead us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. If you want peace, then please listen to me here. Start evening prayer. Night is terrible for me. I'm gonna be honest, I struggle sleeping. I've always struggled sleeping because I can't shut things down. I can't do it. It's like a, a wheel that just keeps going and going and going and going. I even need a mouth guard because I grind my teeth at night. I just cannot shut it off. Night seems to be the worst time for me. I sit there in bed and think about all the horrible, terrible things. Even when life is really good, I do it. When I do evening prayers, and I'm not making this up, when I do evening prayers, I have to cultivate a discipline in my life. At night, I have to talk to God. I don't, I don't care how I feel. I need to do it. I might not feel like doing it, but I need to do it. I need to talk to God about the stuff that's bothering me. I need to give it to him, and I need to let him worry about it. God wants to take it so that I can sleep, right? And when tomorrow comes, the Holy Spirit's gonna lead and guide me and tell me what to do. I love this story. I love the picture of Peter. He's taken his sandals off. He's lying in his bunk. He's stripped down to his underclothes and he's sleeping soundly while chained to Roman guards. I don't know, maybe Peter's snoring kept the guards awake. Maybe, maybe they couldn't go to bed because he was so loud. He didn't have one of those machines that let him sleep easy. What was it that gave Peter so much resolve to endure the pressure and the threat of death that he was able to fall asleep and sleep soundly? So soundly that the angel has to wake him up. <laughs> Tell you what, his trust in God. 
Talk to God about the things that stress you out. Talk to God. So many times I have people come into my office and the first question I ask is, what's your prayer life? Because they're not giving it to God. They're not giving their stresses to God. This is the first step I would tell you to take. Start evening prayers. Start giving your anxieties and your worries to God because he cares for you. Number two, yeah. Number two, Pastor J.D. Greer says this. They used, I love this, they used prayer like a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. <laughs> Listen, and he got it from John Piper. Listen to what John Piper says, and I'm gonna read more in a little bit, but he says, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. This is morning prayer. Morning prayer is this active uh, prayer, going to God, making petitions. It's marked by boldly praying for things in the world that are not right. It's rebellion against the status quo. Listen, they knew it was God's will for the church to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, regardless of what Herod wanted to do. Now, they weren't sure it was gonna, how it was gonna happen. They weren't sure if Peter would make it or not. Actually, remember, they thought he had died. But they knew that God's purpose was to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, so they got on their knees and they said, Lord, make it happen. Make it happen. And by the way, every once in a while, you will hear people say something that sounds really spiritual. Prayer doesn't change the situation, it changes me. I've even said this before. And I, I will say prayer, prayer changes you. It absolutely changes you, but it does change the situation because listen, if you're taking notes, write this down. Prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Prayer moves the arm that moves the world. It's like John Wesley said, I am convinced God does nothing except an answer to prayer. Evening prayers are where you pour out your heart of worry to God. Morning prayers are where you boldly advance God's kingdom. So my question to you today is, what is your prayer life in the morning? Now, these could be switched around. Again, you, you can have a morning prayer at, at noon. You could have a morning prayer at 3 a.m. It doesn't, doesn't really matter, but you get, you get the point here. What's your morning prayer like? I had a past, pastor, pastor, <laughs> go on Cincinnati. I had a pastor once challenged me to write down my prayers. He wanted to see how much of my prayer life was about me and how much was about God's kingdom. This was in one of the darkest times in my life. I was quite offended by it at first. I was battling so much, battling depression, anger. Uh, my dad was dying of a brain tumor and this pastor had the audacity to tell me this. I want you to write down your prayers. I wanna see how much is about you and how much is about God. And I've gotta be honest with you today, most of my prayer life was all about me. My comforts, my wants. I'm not really sure I understood spiritual warfare. Listen, remember, we are in a spiritual battle. Mark Driscoll says spiritual warfare is like gravity. It exists whether we acknowledge it or not. I don't care if you acknowledge it today. You're in spiritual warfare. You can tell me you're not all you want, you are. My prayers, when I wrote them down, did not reflect the prayers of somebody who was at war. My prayers reflected somebody who had no urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. That's what my prayer life reflected. 
Again, I'm gonna read the whole thing from John Piper now. Listen to me. Probably the number one reason, he says, why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. Our field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit. He handed each of them a personal transmitter code, coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters. And he said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. Think about that. My prayer life was quite telling what I was doing with my walkie-talkie. I was trying to rig it up as an intercom in my home, my car, not to call in firepower for conflict, with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts. I wanted more cushion in my life. New Heights Church, this is a word for us heading into 2024. Only when we understand that life is war and that God is sovereign will we be able to access prayer's full power. Until then, we can't know either what life is for or what prayer is for. Listen to me, our enemy, our enemy, I know we're going through a lot. So many people are going through so many painful seasons right now. But listen, our enemy is not cancer. It's not some virus, it's not a political figure, it's not a terrorist, it's not some army. Our enemy is our long, lifelong adversary, Satan. He's our enemy. So please, listen, don't handle prayer like an intercom to request comfortable things from the Lord. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, and thank God we can call in firepower from our commander in heaven. Here's the truth. We need to spend most of our time praying for the advance of God's kingdom in the lives of our family, our community, and our world. And I love it that I'm here. I'm about to close with this. I'm going a little longer. I love it that we're in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting. I love it. I'm asking. I'm, I'm begging you to get involved. I'm asking you to pray every day. I'm asking you to show up on our Wednesday night service. I hope that we have more people on Wednesday night than we do Sunday morning. I really do. I'm, I'm asking you personally, please show up on Wednesday night. Two Wednesday nights, that's it. This Wednesday night, next Wednesday night, we're gonna pray. Would you please show? Show up, let's pray together. The third thing that Pastor J.D. Greer says is they were persistent in their prayers. They knew it was God's will for the church to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, and, and right now, they have a real problem. One of their main leaders has been taken out, the other's about to be killed. They're not sure if Peter was gonna make it or not, but here's the thing you need to know, they're at peace even if he did, didn't make it. But they, they know, they know it's not God's will for Satan to destroy the church or to impede the church's progress. So they got on their knees and say, God, you've got to make something happen. And we're not gonna let you go until you open doors and bless our efforts and overcome our enemies. And they kept at it and wouldn't give up. Charles Spurgeon in his book, God Loves You, says, if you do not seem to get the fruit from the tree by faith, shake it by prayer. Oh, you say, I have been praying. Yes, but a tree does not always drop its fruit at the first shake you give it. Shake it again, and then give it another shake. Sometimes when the tree is loaded and it's pretty firm in the earth, you have got to shake it to and fro, and finally you have to plan your feet and get 
firm hold of it and shake it with all your might until you strain every muscle in order to get the fruit down. And that is the way to pray. Shake the tree of life until mercy drops into your lap. Sometimes you just gotta keep asking. Keep calling to God as if you're waking him up from a nap. They prayed persistently for God to give, and he did. Peter, who is Herod's prized prisoner, walks right underneath Herod's nose, walks out on the night before Herod kills him to please the Jews. Herod is humiliated. Listen, listen, every time the church really prays in Acts, things explode. Acts 1, they pray in the upper room for 10 straight days. The Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches, and 3,000 are saved. Acts 4, they pray and God fills them with such boldness that they turn the city of Jerusalem upside down. By the end of Acts 5, the church, uh, the church in Jerusalem is over 10,000 people, big, and some of the, the harshest critics, like the Jewish priests and eventually Paul himself, are getting saved. <laughs> Here in Acts 12, they pray, God blows up a prison, strikes down Herod, their persecutor with worms. In the next chapter, chapter 13, they pray and God raises up Paul to be a missionary, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. All these things happen. Why? Because of prayer. And I'll close. I'm closing right now. Samuel Chadwick says this in his book, The, the Path of Prayer. The, concern, the one concern of the devil is to keep his saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. So tell me about your prayer life today. Do you do morning and evening prayer? Get involved. Get, we have a prayer group that meets every single Tuesday, and they're always here every Tuesday praying. Come and be a part of it. Every single Wednesday, from noon to one, we pray as a staff, and we invite you to come pray. The next two weeks, like I said, we're focusing on prayer. Just two Wednesdays, that's it. Come and pray. Come and pray. If I feel anything for New Heights Church going into this, this new year, it's this. We've got to make prayer a priority. We've got to be serious about prayer. If we really want to knock down the gates of hell and take people, we've got to be prayer warriors. If we want to see the power of the Holy Spirit move in our services, the power of the Holy Spirit to move in the lives of our loved ones who are addicted and enslaved to sin, then we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has a means to that, right? He has asked us to be a part of praying because that is how he's going to accomplish his purpose. You have got loved ones who are unsaved. Let's pray for them. You have got sickness in your family. Let's pray. Now, I'm not telling, again, we approach God knowing that he is in control, that he is all sovereign. That's how we approach God. But I'm telling you, when we begin to pray, things begin to happen. I do not want to fill this church up with a bunch of people who are addicted to sin still, enslaved to sin. I want to fill this church up with people whose lives have been radically transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're going out and making a difference in the world. That's what I want. So as we close today, I know I went seven minutes over. As we close today, that is my prayer for you. Again, this is my personal, I know I'm pushing it. This is my personal invitation. Please come out on Wednesdays. The next two Wednesdays, we're gonna pray. Please come. Please come and pray. Bring your requests, because we are gonna go to a God that can do anything and everything. Do you believe that? believe that. Father, we love you so much and we praise you and we worship you as we close this service today. 
we dismiss everyone to go, we're still gonna open up our altars to you because we believe that there is something that happens in our life when we stand up. Not that you're more present here at the altar than you are when we're sitting in our chair, but there's something that happens when we stand up and make a declaration that we need you. That's why Jesus all throughout the gospels gave invitations. People were making declarations. Today, God, we want more of you. So we're gonna open up our altar. We're gonna dismiss those who need to go. We're gonna open up this altar for people who are wanting more of you in their life. We commit 2024 to you and we commit to be people of prayer. You are sovereign, you are in control. We acknowledge the fact that you are gonna change the world through our prayers. Lord, we love you so much. We want the Holy Spirit in 2024. We want your will to be accomplished. We want people to know your grace and know your mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.